Leviticus 16. Now, what you need to know is that we're going to finish out this little series next week. Uh, man, um, I've kind of enjoyed this study, but it's been hard dealing with the book of Leviticus the last three or four weeks. And we're going to be back in Leviticus 23 next week talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Then we'll be kind of at the end of this little series. But thanks for hanging with me through this. Now, we, we kind of, as my dad would say, I plowed up a snake a little bit last week that I need to take care of today. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about the use of leavened bread in the Feast of Weeks. Let me give you some things that I, that I know and that, that um, um, kind of were the result of some extra search, uh, research after we dealt with this. But um, the only prescribed use that I can find, of, well, the only prescribed use of unleavened bread is during the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The rest of the time they're using regular bread with, with yeast. Um, uh, the only prescribed use of that <clears throat> is during that feast. Elaborate measures were taken, uh, including you can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy, sweep your house, get all the leaven out of house, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the, uh, elaborate measures were taken during those feasts because of uh, the symbolism that it had with not necessarily um, putrefaction and those kinds of things, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread had to do with commemorating um, the haste with which they left Egypt in that first Passover celebration. Um, go with me just for a minute. If you're in Leviticus, go with me to the right to Deuteronomy 16.3. It's going to kind of give us the, the symbolism behind the unleavened bread. Deuteronomy 16.3. You shall not eat leavened bread with it, Seven days, it's talking about with the uh, Passover feast. Uh, seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So that all the things that they were doing during Passover had to do with commemorating or marking what happened the first Passover. And included with that is they made <clears throat> bread without yeast because they didn't have time to wait for bread to rise. But it's only really commemorative or only kind of given for this particular season or commemoration. Now, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, Jesus did criticize um, what he called the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, you can find that in Mark 8. Um, and he was talking about their hypocrisy <clears throat> while he was on the boat on the way across the sea. If you remember, he said, to them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they looked at each other and they said, uh, did you bring bread? Did you bring bread? You? And they said, well, we forgot to bring bread. And, and uh, they totally missed it. And he kind of, kind of uh, cleared that up before they got to the other side of the sea. But um, he uses that kind of, talks about hypocrisy or, um, or um, corruption there and uses it. But then Jesus also likens in the Gospels, the kingdom of God to leaven. Let me read to you from Matthew 13 and from Luke 13. Here's what he's going to say. Um, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole loaf was leavened. And then in Luke 13, again he said, where, where shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven 
which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. That literally he uses in that place, he uses a positive, uses leaven to, uh, in, in a positive sense. The idea that, that leaven is pervasive, like the kingdom of God is pervasive. And it spreads kind of like yeast. Well, it's interesting to me, uh, and I didn't know this until I'd done a little extra research this, this week. Any of you have got Orthodox background. The Orthodox Church actually uses leavened bread in their uh, weekly Eucharistic feast. Um, in their celebration of, of Holy Communion, they do not use unleavened bread. They use leavened bread, which I just find interesting. It's, it's kind of specific to that particular group. Um, they feel like it's a symbol of thanksgiving. Now, by the way, if you're, uh, uh, when we celebrate the Holy Communion here, we don't use the word Eucharist, but that's kind of a technical term for it. The word Eucharist just comes from the New Testament word for giving thanks, Eucharistia, which just means to give thanks. And um, so, anyway, I find, find all those things a little bit intriguing, and thanks for, for making me do a little extra research this week. Now, tonight, today, we're going to talk about um, another feast. We're going to talk about the third in kind of these series of feasts. This is going to be the feast of um, it, it's really kind of the Day of Atonement. It will be a feasting day, but in a different way. Um, and the, the Day of Atonement, we're going to deal with forgiveness. And uh, I want us to kind of deal with that today. Occasionally, don't we? Each of us needs a little bit of forgiveness. Now, I find it intriguing that this lesson comes on the heels of forgiveness being heavily factored in the Oklahoma City news this week. Um, if you've read, as many of us have, I've had nice emails sent to me occasionally this week about um, the service that took place here in our sanctuary for Ingrid Williams, um, who was uh, one of the Thunder coaches' uh, wives who died tragically in a head-on accident a few days ago. Her husband was uh, Coach... Um, Monty Williams, and in his talk, um, by the way, how could you talk after that with his five kids in tow, but he did, and I'm so happy that he did, he talks about forgiveness, um, uh, and this message of forgiveness that he shared, and it was in this, I just pulled this out of the paper yesterday, it was in the paper Friday, and then the full uh, manuscript of it was in the paper yesterday uh, from the service on Thursday. Um, this, this message that he had of forgiving the other family involved in this death was so strong that it was covered on ESPN. Uh, it was uh, literally, I think they played the entire uh, excerpt of the message, uh, of, of that message at halftime on TNT. And it, again, it was so moving and so effective that it had the, it had the effect of closing Charles Barkley's mouth for a few minutes. Which I think that's, that's tremendous to think that at least that could happen. Uh, him and, he and Shaq both kind of shut up for a little bit. And, uh, you know, he didn't even say, that was terrible. He didn't say that. But, uh, Roger? Oh, yeah. I just don't have the time to write 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, doesn't it illustrate, though, the fact that forgiveness is a big issue? And the Day of Atonement, uh, if you're a, if you're a, a modern-day Jew, you're going to call it Yom Kippur, is, uh, is a big thing, a big day for them. It is probably the biggest um, outside of maybe Passover, the biggest feasting day of the year, and it marks this very, very important piece of their, um, of their lives, and it's certainly uh, important for us. Now, to forgive, okay, in this context, right, to forgive means to give up resentment for an offense committed. To forgive involves um, a cessation of anger toward another person. But atonement is a different deal. And I've got to deal with this a little bit this morning. If forgiveness means I'm going to give up my anger, my resentment, atonement is more than that. Atonement includes reparation for the wrong committed. Okay? Uh, now, I want you to catch this next uh, line. Forgiveness between people is possible without atonement. Okay? Forgiveness between people is possible without atonement, without making things right. But forgiveness by God requires atonement. Think about that for just a little bit because it's going to pervade what we're talking about today. Atonement is often defined as at-one-ment. Somebody takes the word apart. And it's really kind of clever, but it's superficial because it describes the result of atonement to make us one again with God, but it doesn't at all uh, describe the, the basis or the process of it. And that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. Blood atonement, substitutionary payment. We're going to see kind of all of those things. Now, let me give you some background. We're going to go, uh, Bob, if you'll kind of cue up, we're going to start with verse 11 and 16 in just a minute. Okay, you ready to go? All right. Um, the Lord prescribed three annual festivals for the people of Israel to observe at the central sanctuary. So wherever the tabernacle was in this period of time, and certainly in the temple later, the first two were subjects of study the last couple of weeks. Um, and we talked about, uh, John talked about the Feast of Passover, and I talked about the Feast of Weeks last week. The third one is going to be considered um, next week, and that is uh, the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. But beginning that one, just before that third festival, was the Day of Atonement. Arguably the most important religious event on the Hebrew calendar, maybe with the exception of um, Passover. It took place on the 10th day of the 7th month, which would be late sep September or early October. And it took place five days before they would begin the festival of the tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, why is it so important? Well, by the time of the New Testament era, the sacred nature of this particular high holy day compelled the high priest in charge to rehearse what he was going to do on the Day of Atonement for at least a week before it took place. Every day he would rehearse. Okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. He'd do that for seven days. In fact, the high priest, the seven days ahead of time of the Day of Atonement, he would move into one of the uh, rooms uh, off of the temple uh, and uh, he would stay there for at least a week before. Uh, there he could ensure that he remained ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And by the way, if for some reason he didn't, there was a guy in a bullpen waiting for him uh, who would take his place. 
another priest who had kept himself ceremonially clean, um, uh, just in case the priest, the high priest was defiled in any way. During those seven days, the high priest would rehearse every day his duty of lighting the lamps in the temple, carrying the incense and live coals with a censer, sprinkling and applying blood, accomplishing the essential features surrounding that burnt offering sacrifice. There were others with him who were coaching him all that time because when it finally became the Day of Atonement, he had to do it all by himself. So imagine this. He had other priests around him who were reading the law. They had, had scrolls open. They'd say, now you do this. Next you do this. No, don't do that. Do this. Okay, so they were kind of checking him out for seven days prior to the Day of Atonement. Does it sound like it was kind of important what they did? It, it certainly does to me. Now, during those, um, he would rehearse all those things during, uh, uh, as the Day of Atonement approaches, he would have ordinary clothing on. Now, I think of, when I think of that, I think of jeans and a t-shirt, but that's not exactly what he was wearing. But he'd have nor his normal garments on as the day dawned. And then he bathed and changed into his colorful high priestly garments. They're beautiful, and, and he would put those on, uh, and he would perform the burnt offering that was done every day of the year, kind of that normal thing. Then... As he went through the day, he bathed and changed clothes five times through the day. He washed his hands and feet twice that many times just to stay clean because this was a big day. Couldn't have had more importance. He, he did something else, and I just read about this this week, and it really kind of astounds me. Uh, then, any of you that are kind of students of the Old Testament know that when they spoke and even when they wrote the name of the Lord, they wouldn't say his name. Are you aware of that? In fact, they'd, they'd abridge it or they'd use the word Lord instead of, um, for us, it would be the name God. For them, it'd be the name Yahweh. They never spoke that name except one time a year. The high priest said the name of Yahweh on the Day of Atonement. I find that really interesting. See how important this day must have been. Now, the Day of Atonement was a day when God stated that atonement would be made for all the members of the community, for all the sins of all the Israelites. Now, you and I as Christians are aware that there was a weakness to this ritual, but we want to study it anyway and see what we can learn from it. So let's go now to the Scriptures and Bob, if you go to Leviticus 16, read 11 down through 14, we'll get started. Okay, now how did this day begin? How did the ritual of atonement begin? Did you catch it? He had to offer sacrifice for his own sin. Catch that? It's a bull. They slaughter the bull. 
and he offers the bull's blood uh, and, and some of the flesh as a, as a burnt offering sacrifice. And he's offering that sacrifice to begin with for his own sins and for the sins of his family. Now, this was a feature that begins really, I think, based on what happened in Leviticus 10. You don't have to turn back there, but you remember the original instructions were given to um, Aaron, who was Moses' brother. You remember the one who kind of talked a little better than Moses and became, and became named as, as the, the first high priest over the, over the, um, the nation. Well, Aaron's sons, um, I better read their names so I don't butcher them yet again, but um, their names were uh, Nadab and Abihu. Did I get that right? Yeah, Nadab and Abihu. They, in 10, it says that they were going through some of this stuff and they offered what the one translation of the Bible calls strange fire. And it got them killed. Now, okay, uh, one of the things you, we're going to see here and, and um, as we work through this is that they had to bring, uh, um, we're going to see a place where they take a pan and they put coals of fire, uh, burning coals, uh, from the outer altar into the Holy of Holies to offer an incense offering and those kinds of things. And uh, they, it was prescribed. You, you get it from out there. You don't, well, evidently, uh, the guys um, brought fire from outside the camp or outside the tabernacle or something, and it was called strange fire. The word, the word translated in Hebrew, strange here, uh, in 10.1, is the word outside fire. Okay? Um, and it was really prescribed that that shouldn't happen. So, so this ritual of the high priest offering sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of his particular family got added onto this just to make sure that these guys were in good shape uh, to offer um, the sacrifice when, when the time came. Now, I want you to write this. I didn't write this. I wish I had written this. But I want you to write a, a, a phrase in your, in, on your outline. Okay. What they were guarding against here, and here's the phrase, was a casual carelessness about holy things. A casual carelessness about holy things. Now, maybe you do some kind of a Lenten fast, and maybe you don't. Maybe you're like a friend of mine who uh, instead of taking something away during the season of Lent, which we're in kind of the uh, middle of about the third week of Lent, instead of taking something away, uh, this person adds something too. And I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and maybe you don't do that at all. Maybe you say, you know, I wasn't raised in a liturgical family. I wasn't raised in a liturgical home. Neither was I. Um, uh, and so that's really never been a part of, of my life. Now, at Crossings, for the last several years, we've celebrated Ash Wednesday, which is really early. Uh, Lent is really early this year, and they did that here a couple weeks ago. And, um, but, but one of the things that I think Lent does for us, that a Lenten fast might do, or at least the celebration of that, is it reminds me that there are some things that are holy, and they ought to remain holy. Okay? I, I think we live in a world that is entirely too casual about most things. And it's become that we've become really casual about holy things. So here's what I want you to envision in your mind that they're going after here as, as Bob began to read when they're talking about uh, where the fire comes from and all that kind of stuff. What I want you to imagine is that there is a sacred flame 
uh, ignited in the middle of our sanctuary, and it's something that calls us to God every week. Um, you know, maybe it's candles or whatever. And what I want you to envision is a cigarette lighter sitting by it. That, just kind of, that image just kind of bothers me. I've seen it, not here. I've seen it where we're going to light candles in church and they've got a cigarette lighter sitting by, you know. And I'm just thinking, okay, now there are some things that I know we, we live in a really casual day, but there are some things that aren't there that ought to remain holy, I think. And so if this 40 days of the year calls me back to a specific kind of holiness, then that's probably a pretty good thing for me because I tend to be a pretty casual guy. I don't want to ever get casual about the things that are holy and the things that matter. I'm going to ask a question here in a minute that's going to harken back to this. But let's just deal with that. Uh, the leaders are being taught, the spiritual leaders of the nation are being taught here of how to care about the right things, about holy things. And then in verse 12, it kind of goes on to talk about other things that they're going to do. Here's the deal where they take the fire pan. There's no, you know, cigarette lighter in his back pocket. Okay. No Zippo in his back pocket. All right. Or one of those things that I used to light the grill with. You know, none of that. He goes outside of the, the holy place and the holy of holies. And he goes out to the main altar where there's live coals already burning because they've already offered a sacrifice of the day. And he takes a fire pan and he puts that in there, and he takes it with him inside the Holy of Holies, which he only does this once a year, and he puts incense on it. So it just seems to me that the details matter. Um, on Ash Wednesday, okay, do you know the tradition where the ashes come from? It actually, it's, you're supposed to, you, uh, literally, George used to do this. I was always impressed with this. George would take the palm branches from the year, Psalm Sunday, the years before, he'd put them in the freezer, and they'd burn them leading up to Ash Wednesday to use the ash. Uh, you know, I don't want you to think there was a guy with, you know, smoking a pack of Marlboros in the back of the church, getting a bunch of ash together, okay? It's just not going to be the way that happens. That would be not holy, right? Okay? Okay? Or some guy with a, several stogies. You know, that's just not the way that works. Is it, the, the details matter. Don't the details matter? Now, by the way, you can also, it's interesting, you can buy in liturgical supply houses, you can buy ash to use for Ash Wednesday. If you forget to do that, or if you're just starting it, you know, if you forget to do that, you can buy some ash, and they certify that it's from Palm Sunday. So, yeah, I find that interesting. Now, now, we're going to talk about ritual a little bit, and I'm not all about ritual here, but, but it's kind of the idea that the details matter. So the priest is going to, in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 14, he's going to take, uh, like I said, verse 13, he's going to take this, this fire pan with burning coals on it. And he's going to take it inside the holiest place in the nation. Wherever the tabernacle was, that holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was the holiest place in the nation. He was going to take it, he's going to take it in there, and as soon as he gets in there, he's going to put two fistfuls of incense. And, and by the way, they had a recipe for that. It's in the scriptures. They're going to put two fistfuls of incense on there. And what's going to happen? 
smoke. Lots of it. And it's going to conceal, really, when he does all of his work inside the Holy of Holies, which is really, really important, he will barely be able to see. It'll mask everything in there. And those who are standing outside will probably see some smoke billowing out from under the tent curtain. The details kind of matter here. Now, according to verse 14, this ritual, he's going to take some, uh, uh, in the original, uh, he's going to take some bulls of blood, he's going to place it on the horns of the altar, and he's going to take some of that and sprinkle it on the atonement cover, which was kind of this, where they, they, it's sometimes called the mercy seat. They thought God lived there. And he's going to sprinkle some of it there and sprinkle some in the dirt in front of it. He's going to do the same thing with goat's blood here in a little bit. But all of that just kind of makes me think here that the ritual is always to involve blood. Now, here's my question. Is ritual always a bad thing? What are the rituals that we kind of enjoy when we come to church? Prayer. I'm sorry. We get to sing. That's the only time I get to sing with a whole bunch of other people through the week, right? What else? A communion once a month here. I love that. Baptism. You know, the word ritual kind of leaves a sour taste in our mouth. But we really do kind of like them. As long as they're our rituals, don't we? Think about that a little bit. The problem is, and it happened in the Old Testament, it happened in the New Testament. Jesus got sick of it and he talked about it a lot. The problem is when the ritual becomes ritualistic. That's a whole different word. It means that I'm just going through the motions, that the meaning is taken completely out of it. But I'm just doing this because I got to. Because that's what we do when we come together with church. And that can be something as important as um, singing a song or giving an offering. Anything that we do that's part of the ritual of worship, whether it's something high church or something much less, can become ritualistic if we don't endure it with meaning every time. Bob? Oh, yeah. It's a matter of what's going on in your heart. You know? And it's really important that I make sure that the rituals of worship don't become ritualistic to me. And occasionally I'll catch myself. You know, when I leave here, I go to the orchestra and, you know, I'm, I'm the guy they allow to play, right? And I'm there and, and there are times when we're celebrating Holy Communion and they'll pass the elements out and I put it on my music stand and I don't get enough time to really think about what I'm doing. You know, sometimes, uh, there have been times when I'm counting measures waiting to play again or something, you know? And, uh, but I really want to hold that, those elements in my hand and, and I mean, is it magic? I mean, it's not. That's Welch's grape juice. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's bread that Cindy Webb bakes. I love it. But, yeah, I know where it comes from. There's nothing magical about getting it there. Aren't you glad people do that? 
But I need to contemplate that moment and take it seriously in order to maintain its holiness because it is a holy thing. Now, I want you to go with me to the book of Hebrews. In fact, you probably ought to put a finger in the book of Hebrews. We're going to go over there a couple times today. And I want us to go to 9. In the, Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews is really dealing a lot with what happens in the tabernacle or what happened in the tabernacle and the temple and the meaning thereof. And I want us to go to verse 7 and 8. Would somebody read nine Hebrews 9, verse 7 and 8? going to talk about tab tabernacle worship and the offering of a blood sacrifice for atonement. Okay, I want a couple of you to stay there because we're going to come back to 9 and 10 in a minute. But it's this idea, is he saying, this had meaning, but that was only good as long as the, the uh, tabernacle, the old tabernacle was standing. Okay, now we're going to go on, all right? I want you to go with me to verse 15, back in Leviticus 16, and I want us to read what happens next. Now remember, the priest has started by offering a sacrifice for his own sin and for the sin of his particular family. Now, let's go to verse 15. Here's what happens. Then he, the high priest, slaughtered the goat of the sin offering. There's a couple of goats that have been brought. Remember I asked the question last week, what it would be like if you had to drag a goat to church every time you came? Well, they had two goats that were, that were brought into the, the kind of the entrance of the tabernacle as the Day of Atonement began. And, we're going to be, and we'll start kind of looking at what they're going to do with them now. Uh, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Okay, so he's going to do the very same thing with the blood of the goat. Now, but this blood is not for himself or for the sins of his family. It's for the sins of the congregation, the people. All right? Now go back to verse 16. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, uh, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Now, there are two goats involved, and they, they actually throw dice. They cast lots to see which one is which. Okay, so the first one, you can read about him in verse 8, 9, and 10, is offered for a sin, offer, sin offering. That's the, the word that goes in the blank there. Uh, the first goat's talked about here. He's slaughtered. His blood is used for a sin offering on the Day of Atonement. And the second one is used. You've heard this word. You've probably used this word. Everybody in this room has used this word, but it comes from right here. The second goat is called, you ready, the scapegoat used that term before it comes from the book of Leviticus the idea here is after all this ritual takes place the final ritual that takes place and it's talked about in verse 22 is that same high priest will lead the scapegoat out 
out of the tabernacle and he shoes him out into the, uh, the, the brush, into the wilderness. Get away from us. Because that goat, the idea there is he is bearing the sins of the people and taking them away. The scapegoat. You ever used that term before? It's where it comes from. Okay. Now, by the way, something happened with the scapegoat one time. Now, this is true. Okay? I didn't make this one up. Sometimes I make stuff up. I didn't make this up. The scapegoat one time wandered back in the camp. And it's like, now what do we do? So, now I'm not making this up. They started in, in succeeding uh, years. They got to where when, the, when they sent the scapegoat out, they would, they would lead him backwards, shove him over a cliff so that he didn't come back. Isn't that interesting? I just find that kind of intriguing because uh, really the idea of we're taking our sins away so they didn't want him coming back. So one is for a sins offering. The other is a scapegoat. The term is biblical. Now, Evidently, according to verse 16, sin is putrefying. And the word you want to use there is pervasive, even in sacred places. They've got to kind of cleanse the whole tabernacle once a year. All the tent flaps, all that kind of stuff. Where there is sin, there is a need for blood to remove it. When I do work in the hospital... I remember a story, I was reading a story this last weekend about Mike Lauderdale becoming the, uh, one of the uh, uh, managing partners at McAfee Taft. And, and I remember uh, years and years ago, I would, uh, Mary Jane, Mike's wife, called me to come see uh, their little infant baby, Davis. And uh, he was in the ICU and wasn't doing very well. And they just wanted me to pray for him. And, and I was happy to do that. But I remember there was a nurse ratchet in the NICU at Baptist Hospital. And she'd say, I'd say, I came to see Davis Lauderdale. Yeah, he and his parents are back there. They've asked me to come. That's good, but you're going to wash your hands. So she'd watch me as I rolled my sleeves up. I washed my hands like I've never washed them before. And as I walked away, she said, do it again. <laughs> I think I did it three times. The skin was gone from my hands by the time this was done. Because... Germs are easily passed, and especially to one who was so um, precarious in those days. When, when, when Dan goes to see Isla Kate, I bet, you know, if they get to hold her at all, it's with all kinds of restriction because it's pervasive. Sin is pervasive. By the way, Davis now plays football for a... Uh, uh, for, uh, Bishop McGinnis High School, he's like 6'2". I think he did okay. I think he came out okay. Now, here's my question. Are all priests in need of forgiveness? We were in Hebrews 9 a little bit ago. Let's go back there. Somebody read verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9. Are all priests, all these high priests, you know, he had to offer uh, sacrifice for his own sin, the sin of his family. Are they all in need of forgiveness? Okay, let's see what Hebrews says about this. Somebody got Hebrews 9, 11, and 12?
There was one high priest who didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, according to the book of Hebrews. He's the final high priest, offering the final sacrifice that the book of Hebrews says once and for all, for all men, for all time, one sacrifice. You and I know him really well. His name is Jesus. And he's called, the whole book of Hebrews is making the case of him being a great high priest, not like Aaron. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, in Hebrews 4, 15, it says, He was like we are in every way, tested, tempted like we are in every way, and yet without sin. So he's uniquely not only the high priest, but he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the scapegoat. You get that? Now, in closing... By the way, let me fill in your blanks just real quick. The altar itself needs to be atoned for. I, th I find that interesting. It's got to have blood on it. The cleansing is needed, but not because of dirt. It's because of sin. So what happens next? And it talks about the scapegoat ritual. And here's what we can learn. Hebrews 4.10 says something like this. But the blood of bulls and goats. It's talking specifically here about Leviticus 16. The blood of bulls and goats, it says, never could take away sin. It was practice. A couple of thousand years of practice. For what? For what a great old hymn writer wrote about years and years ago. And most of you could sing it if I cued it up. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You catch it? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats can't do that. And they were practicing it all that time until the final sacrifice, one time, one man for all men for all time. Okay, we're going to go back to 23 next time and we'll finish out this series. I love talking about this stuff with you. See you next week.